Hello, this is Brad Redderson, and welcome to Spernova's Interview Series, an audio program exploring the intersection between cutting-edge business strategies and the innovations that can ignite business growth. It's one of several podcast series on the subject of strategic innovation in business offered by Stranova, a resource group dedicated to helping you achieve and capitalize on the incredible potential available for your own business. With our over 30 years of experience leading innovation, we know what it takes to turn ideas into profits. Please visit us to learn more at www.stranova.com. And now, please join us for this week's episode of Stranova's Interview Series. Most of you know the following phrase as normally beginning with the word love, but it applies equally well with another word you use perhaps just as often and with an equal degree of mystery to it. That word, success, and the saying, success is in the eye of the beholder. Hold that thought for a minute. For those of us in the strategic innovation business, setting aims as we begin any new enterprise is a critical part of our process, and defining what success means for each of us is often part of that. But what is success anyway? For many, it seems to be about the intangibles of wealth and influence, with perhaps also the related byproducts of security and power and community, and possibly even the world as a whole. Under those terms, who could deny that power brokers such as Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and Steve Jobs of the present day, and the Rockefellers and Rothschilds of an earlier time, indeed experienced success on a scale well beyond that of almost all of us? Their absolute wealth in total dollars, and their dominance over their industries, and the business ecosystems they helped create, is indeed towering. And yet, somewhere inside each of us, and yes, even in each of them, lies the question of both the deeper meaning of success and also how each of us might chart a personal course to that seemingly ultimate goal in our own careers and lives. To help sort that out, and along the way hopefully trigger some critical internal dialogue of your own on this very important question for all of us, for this episode of Stranova, we are very pleased to welcome Mark Thompson, co-author with Jerry Porras and Stuart Emery of the new book, Success Built to Last, Creating a Life that Matters. In this book, Mr. Thompson and his colleagues present the results of over 300 interviews with successful people from around the globe in all walks of life, and help analyze how unique the path to success was for each of those people and yet how meaningful and holistic success in life does indeed seem to emerge from similar values of what it means to live a full life. Mark himself is a highly successful entrepreneur in his own right, with 12 years working with his early mentor, Charles Schwab, where he held many different roles, including chief communications officer and executive producer of one of the world's most profitable websites, Schwab.com. He also has his own extensive background in startup leadership, both as a lead investor and later as chairman of many technology and media startups. His famous Midas touch with ticking startups from concept to strong, steady growth is renowned among venture capital circles, so much so that in 2004, Forbes magazine selected Mark on its list of America's leading venture investors. Not a bad choice for this important dialogue. We thank Mark for taking the time to be with us. 
Mark, welcome to Stranova. Well, Brad, it's a terrific opportunity to be here with you. To get straight to it, you know, your new book, and congratulations on its success, by the way, You've been hearing really good things about it, is, of course, entitled Success Built to Last, with the subtitle Creating a Life That Matters. So to help our listeners with a bit of a framework for the conversation going ahead, can you tell us how you define success for the purposes of this book? Sure. Well, that was really the exciting journey that it undertook for many, many years, really 10 years of interviews. We talked to people for this book, Successful to Last, all over the world. And the way we framed the conversation was that we were looking for people who had a lasting impact on the world in their career or their profession for many, many years, more than two decades. And when we looked at that, we realized that we had an opportunity to look at how success could be defined. Traditionally, if you look in the dictionary, it's defined as money, fame, and power. It's kind of frightening, frankly. And what we discovered when we were able to reach out to people all over the world who had their definitions of success, that there were many different definitions of success, and that, frankly, they all came down to this one, which is having a lasting impact and making a meaningful difference in the world. Well, that certainly is a big ambition. How did you go about the process of investigating that then to really learn more about how it's being practiced in in the world? Well, we really had the privilege in conferences, meetings at Stanford University, at the World Economic Forum, at many other major conferences around the world to meet people with some noteworthy contact with the world, a level of having some enduring change. Not so much a popularity contest, but one in which we saw the opportunity for these people to be able to reach out and have a lasting impact, one that's impacted the world for a generation or more. And that's defined very differently in the different worlds that they live. And what we wanted to find is not more reasons to find out why people are different from each other or, frankly, you know, it's too late for me now. I can't get smarter or I can't get more talented than before. I wanted not more reasons to distance ourselves from our greater potential. So really look for the common themes. What could an eclectic and very diverse group of people from all over the world in many different professions be able to contribute to a body of knowledge that may be able to help all of us as individuals? You know, what do we have in common rather than what's different from each other? Quite an ambitious task, and I'm sure no shortage of people that you talked to that were willing to share. But I'm curious, can you tell us an example of maybe a particularly telling interview or a couple of interviews that truly illustrates some of the more important learnings that you uncovered during the study? Well, one that came up really recently, I found that the lessons themselves transcended the individuals at the end of the day because there were so many different thrilling experiences. I mean, when you're able to have the opportunity to, we were just talking earlier about the Dalai Lama or spend time with Maya Angelou or with a former president or with a chief executive of a multinational corporation. There are many different learnings, many different places where I felt that it was a big impact on my life and the lives of others. One of those that came up more recently around this theme that you have in Stranova around innovation is this notion that I was talking to Patricia Russo at Lucent, and she was talking about how she was going through the horrible transition and the pressures when the telecom industry is, and it's continued to go through, very, very interesting times, has it not? You're talking to us on Skype today and the uh, technology of the telecom world bringing us closer together. And she was being criticized in an interview, once again, for not being able to predict the future. 
Here she was trying to innovate. She was trying to actually keep up with the big changes in the industry at a time when it was really impossible to predict the quarter versus even a year. And she said, look, do you think we're idiots? And he said, what? Do you think we're idiots? Do you think we're just plain stupid here, that we're just not even trying to, <laughs> to innovate, that we're not trying to be able to keep up with what's going on in the world right now, but it's just happening at such a fast pace. And it changed the tenor of the interview from just being one of division to one of saying, well, let's look at really what's happening in the world right now and, and what we're trying to accomplish. And kind of the meta message that flowed out of this conversation that I heard from so many different people is, innovation is failure sped up. And innovation is a politically incorrect thing at the end of the day when you consider that it really comes from iterative failure, that you have to have this relationship that you can experiment and fail and have public and embarrassing failures for which you'll have criticism. So it's interesting that you know, popular culture is that innovation is a good thing and failure is you know, something that maybe we can accept a few of. But at the end of the day, that innovation is really failure sped up, that if you're not in a place where you're able to iterate with failure on a frequent level of velocity and learn from those failures and harvest those failures in a great way, then you can't innovate. And frankly, what that means is you better get used to you know, having your image burned in effigy on Broadway because if you're not getting criticized, then you're probably not trying hard enough. You know, Frankly, you're going to take heat for innovation. We should not be wondering why it's tough for companies and individuals to innovate when you take so much heat for doing that. And I heard that from people all over the world. In fact, their whole relationship with failure, frankly, was if you didn't know how the story came out, they talked so much about failure, they're such experts at it, you think they were losers. Because frankly, they would look at setbacks and failure and contention as opportunities to really mine those experiences for data and input, and often found those failures more revealing than their successes. So how they harvest contention, how they harvest failure is really probably one of the most profound things that I experienced over and over from these folks. I think people are surprised to hear that folks have had great success, have had enormous failure. And what they'll tell you is that failure has been more the norm. Well, it's interesting. I just heard a talk recently about a bit on how the Silicon Valley whole experiment had come to pass and why it might be unique. And one of the issues was that there's a culture where it is perfectly okay to fail as long as you learn something from it. There are some people involved with stock options right now that may not exactly learn the right message, but if you talk about business in general, they certainly do. And I think of two examples from at least previous corporate world that used to support failure. One of them is 3M, where they're constantly throwing out new products, and it's okay to fail. Not only that, they want like three times as many things to come out as actually maybe ever hit the market. Hewlett-Packard also used to have, I don't know that it's true as much anymore, but used to have a similar philosophy that in order for us to really have the breakthroughs, we have to have two to three times as many things being created as ever make it to market. Yes, and that gets institutionalized by some companies, like at Google, for example, that has a 20% of your time that is paid for your ability to explore other passions that you have. One of the things that we discovered that these people also had in common was while they may look like racehorses with their blinders on, being steadfastly focused. And we hear today you've got to focus, 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 which is certainly true. I mean, you're not going to get anything done if you aren't focused and you set goals that allow you to be able to increment your way through innovation and other means towards some main focus. However, 
the truth is that the way these people actually operate is that they have very complicated lives filled with a portfolio of passions. And those portfolio of passions, those other things in their life in addition to their main gig, feed their main passion in a couple of ways. Either it allows them to be able to go deeper and get some relief from that main activity. I mean, I think we've all had the experience where you've gone off and done something else other than the problem you're working on, and you get that flash of insight. We call it peripheral thinking in our research. But there's also others who actually find a gig that might be more specific or more powerful in their focus, like the Google folks, where they pay people to experiment with a fraction of their time and have those failures and do those experiments, and when it's ready for prime time, can bring it back to the family for a closer look. I mean, that's how they came up with Google News, for example. So their innovation program is filled with a way that allows people to also connect with their other passions and see if there might be other ways to be able to expand or become more expert or specific at something that you want to achieve. It could become a specialty, for example. You can combine many different passions. Maya Angelou talked about how if she didn't have a portfolio of passions, if she didn't pursue many of them, she might not be able to actually achieve any of them. In other words, she, without being fed by music and by dance and by theater, she doesn't believe she could be able to write her poetry or teach, which are two of her real core main passions that she has. So I think this ends up being an area that's been given some short shrift. And now we have, as we looked at this research, it's really clear that these people have given themselves permission to pursue a broad portfolio of passions that have led to their enduring success maybe in one main area in their lives. That actually ties in then to another major learning that beyond the issue of success has part of its elements or what brought you to the success, it has failure built in. You also have the issue of exploring these other fields. It actually, again, connects me a bit to the discussion I had with James Burke a few weeks ago, which we have a podcast out on, of course, where part of what he was talking about was the reductionist trend in the way we educate and we learn and that we typically like to get deep into a specialty and we don't actually look for the connections across into other ones. And part of what you're saying is that a finding is this peripheral thinking, I believe is the way you refer to it. Exactly right. That's a precisely beautiful way to explore what those other connections might be in your life and in your work is to look at what other passions you have and explore those as a portfolio and seek to allocate some time to honor those because it can be very difficult when you're very goal-oriented and there's so much short shrift given to the ability to pursue any other passions. When you've got a life to lead and a bread that you have to put on the table, there's not a lot of time left. And so often those portfolio passions get shortchanged. And so what we found is that there's actually unique power to that that feeds the main work that you do. And it's a bit of a leap of faith because... The connections may not be obvious, but one of the great innovations that occurs are those that where the connections aren't initially obvious in the first place. <laughs> the connections that James Burke talked about are serendipitous outcomes of, in a sense, earning your luck because you've been able to invest the time in it. In fact, that ends up being leading us to another major finding that we had. People always ask, do these people have a roadmap? Did they know, you know, 30 years ago that they were going to be Quincy Jones? And what's interesting about that is we found a resounding no to that answer. They did not know what the end was going to be. Covey talks about starting with the end in mind, but I think there's confusion of which end that we're trying to seek. 
And when I talk to Steve Covey about this, the end he's talking about is a way of life, which is really validated by our research. And it often gets confused with a particular outcome, you know, money, fame, or power, going back to the original definition of success and how it was resoundingly beaten by the research we did that people would look to money, fame, and power as being one set of possible outcomes that you might have from certain types of career choices that you'd make. But that if you wanted to enduring success, you really have to define it for yourself. It is your right. You have a, a privilege and right to define success for yourself. That's what people who've had enduring success for several decades or more have done. They've defined it themselves. And it really comes back to always seeking meaning in what they're doing. They always have integrity each time. In other words, if they haven't decided you know, 30 years in advance they were going to be Quincy Jones, then how the heck did they make the decisions? You know, what was the roadmap? And what we heard over and over again is that you really can't follow the other guy's roadmap. You really have to find what matters to you and align that with also the passions you have. So meaning that what matters to you is usually being involved with something that you care about, but may also be involved with being a cause greater than yourself. And when I say cause, I, I'm almost reluctant to use that word. I'm not talking about necessarily doing Habitat for Humanity. That's good, too. But I'm talking here about whatever set of things that you do that just matter because you care about them deeply and you think they're connected to something that will last, that there's something that has a meaningful purpose long term. That could be, you know, you work as a technologist or a scientist or a teacher or an entertainer. You know, the music matters. Quincy Jones would still be doing his music because it matters to him whether or not he'd become popular or not. There's no way you could stop Jack Welch from teaching business and being a manager if he'd ended up running a bagel store and on the, uh, you know, the Lower East Side, he'd still be telling you about how to run a business and be collecting ways to learn about how to manage companies. These people are driven to what they're doing, not with the, the goal in mind of ever kind of going off and retiring on a beach. I was with Jeff Bezos at the World Economic Forum in uh, Switzerland, that kind of eclectic celebrity fest, and you'll find all sorts of people from all walks of life. And I sat with him at a dinner, and he felt, I'm sure, stuck with uh, the wrong guy at the table because I was asking him, so why are you still doing this? At the time, he was time man of the year, well over $10 billion. Everybody wanted a piece of him at that time. And frankly, he said, you know, you really just don't get it. I mean, he laughed at first and said, you know, everybody's looking for the roadmap right now. He has this wonderful trademark guffaw. And he says, but, you know, we don't get into these things with this sort of level of passion and obsession and meaning just so that we can stop doing it. You know, so that we can check out that what leads us to wanting to do these things in the first place is a lifelong passion for something that has meaning for us. And that's why these people, they don't have an exit strategy. <laughs> you know, the people whose careers have lasted in that framework are connected to it in a way that has a lot more to do than any sort of material awards or, or privileges they may have gained from it. Although those are nice things. I'm not saying they diss those things. They like their toys as much as the next guy. They just don't expect that part of the material things to make them happy or keep them happy, I'll put it that way. It's true. Though we should watch out. I understand that Jeff is currently building a spacecraft, so that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Inspired by or uh, led astray by, you know, the likes of Richard Branson and others who we've met, too. And the way they found that out, too, was interesting. Somebody actually started tracing what was being delivered to the strange warehouse in Seattle and then found out who it was was Mr. Bezos comment there, too, that I think you helped define something that a lot of times we forget. Many people, of course, know 
the seven habits thing that Stephen Covey did in this begin with the end in mind, a lot of people think of as when you're doing a project, you know, know what the goal of the project is. But fundamentally, for truly profound success, it needs to go beyond that. I would also say that I have some colleagues that are venture capitalists, and I'll keep the names of the firms out because you never know whether they want to be quoted or not, but they were commenting that you find a lot of people that are strategic innovators, or at least that want to be a strategic innovator or do a startup, that are great at execution and leadership, meaning they can rally the troops, they can get things done toward an end, but they really lack the substantive vision that allows them to see the long-term success. They're always dealing with kind of a narrow one. Yes. Well, it's great to hear that venture capitalists, who are usually best known for being in a place where they kind of spot great ideas, spot great talent, but are looking for an easy exit or a quick exit on return. And I can speak that way, I think, because you know I've been on the Forbes Midas list of venture investors in America, and I've been a venture investor for years and years. And and it's great to hear actually VCs talk that way because we started a program at Stanford as part of a, a group of advisors for what they call the real-time venture design lab there. And one part of the experiment there was to really look at this exact issue that you're talking about, Brad, which is that if you are connected in your soul with an idea or passion that has meaning to you and you've got that narrative figured out, then the chances of being able to beat these odds of, you know, these horrible odds of most ventures failing, we found a lot of people at Stanford and elsewhere, you know, who could write killer business plans. They could do the math. That's really not the hard part. And they could also, in many cases, would have either the charisma or the presentation skills that could be trained to, you know, commit death by PowerPoint. And when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, you have to be in a place with a group of people doing something for which kind of goes back to our initial comment about innovation and Pat Russo lamenting the criticism in the public, but realizing that's going to be the way it is. Do you really want to be doing this when the, the worst happens, when you have the inevitable failure or the setback? You know, what crew of people on what project do you want to be working? Esther Dyson of Release 2.0, you know, the, the person who's been commenting on the web forever, basically talked about it that way. She said, you know, basically the best way to evaluate an investment would be imagine the time, and it will come, when everything goes wrong, who do you want to be with and what do you want to be doing? And will it still be worth it? And what that does is it really, it's a little perverse perhaps, but it allows you to evaluate you know, what really matters. What we really determined was there's a very, and I'm oversimplifying it now, but there were really three ways that people hold success. And these three dimensions are the balancing act that most of them who had had long, enduring success were trying to balance. They weren't trying to balance how much time went into personal life or versus professional life or legacy or community. We found them all over the map. That type of balance didn't exist. Passion, by definition, is not balanced. The balancing act that we saw them going through was always fighting to keep together these three elements, meaning, passion, and action. In other words, they had to always be going back to connecting to why are we doing this and why is this meaningful and how does this perhaps have an impact larger than just me? And then separately from that, they look at passion, which passion is uniquely selfish. It's something that you like for its own sake. It's inexplicable. It may not be connected to a larger cause. You just love watermelon or you love music or you love to do something in your life that really is uniquely in your heart and you have to define it for yourself. If you can get that same passion to overlap with something that has meaningful impact, stand back. That's when people go from good to great. 
when you look at these people, we saw this over and over. And then they had a way always to create kind of measurable, achievable goals so they could increment themselves towards success. In the original book, Built to Last, the co-authors talked about big, hairy, audacious goals. Some of those are set, too. But in most action, it's small, measurable, achievable goals that are set to try to move those passions and that meaningful work towards an outcome. So if you can think about testing your sensibilities around every time you're approaching a project or a career decision or something you really want to endure and last, if you can put that filter on and say, OK, let me ask at least those three questions. You know, why does this matter to me? Why is this part of a, a meaningful activity that I think that will matter and have a legacy? Is this a passion of mine? Is this something that I would do secretly for free? You know, passions are defined as those inexplicable things that you really care about. And there's many tests for that, things like you daydream about it, you secretly do for free. When you're doing it, you get into this you know, flow experience, as it's called. But that's not all there is. It also has to be something that you feel that you can break down into the achievable steps that would make you happy getting done as a project in terms of the action. So it's meaning, a way of looking at passion and thought, and then a, a way of taking action, those three steps. For Success Built Allows, we're creating an assessment, which will be out soon, to allow people to kind of take a look at, you know, in a few minutes, you can kind of look at what we found was that people will have a tendency. People have meaning, thought, and action in their lives. They have it in their heart in terms of how they hold the issue of success. But we find that people have a tendency to have a propensity towards one of these three areas. One person might be the person in the group that always is asking why. And there's always the person who's saying, but we should do it because it's our passion and we really care about it. That's what makes it sustainable. And then there's always the person in the group who's saying, but how are we getting this done and are we happy about it? <laughs> and so we found a nice dynamic here for people in Success Built to Last to start to think about evaluating choices and, frankly, throwing out the, the dictionary definition of success, taking that back. In fact, we're going to start a challenge with the dictionaries on the definition of success because we think the pathology and the misery of money, fame, and power, once again, those aren't bad things. They just don't make good goals. <laughs> they can be wonderfully pleasant outcomes. <laughs> they can be extremely frustrating. It's like the people that are in college and decide that they want to be a professional baseball player or, or whatever. Right. Yeah, the ones that succeed in that do well, but it's a very tiny percentage of those who try. And if you want to go after fame, I guess you should talk to people who have it and decide whether or not that was a good idea. I want to move to an action side of this. That's, I guess, the side of me kicking in here at the moment. In addition to the, you know, the subject matter that you just talked about, I also know that you conceive the project from the beginning as a bit of strategic innovation in itself so that you could collect the data for this in a lot of different forms that it could be reused in different ways. Could you tell us a little bit about how that worked? I've always been a person very much interested in multimedia and the digital landscape. That's what I studied in graduate school at Stanford was media. I was executive producer of Schwab.com. I was chairman of RealPort, the earlier pioneering of the MP3 player before the iPod came out. And so I've always been multimodal and multimedia interested. I've always felt that people received information in many different formats that made it deeper and, frankly, easier and simpler to absorb, whether that was video, audio, or in the written word. And, you know, of course, I couldn't have predicted the Internet any more than anyone else, but certainly all of those different modalities 
were starting to come together when I started doing these research in 1996 at the Republican and Democratic National Conventions. I started doing interviews. I was at Schwab. We were looking at another phase of the development of Schwab.com, and I was going to be exec producing and creating more content of interest. And I was starting to do interviews with chief executives for those who were interested in talking in a more deep way in town hall formats with CEOs and business. So it was a cacophony of all these different issues coming together and realizing it was now possible to have a conversation in many different modalities. I couldn't imagine the types of modalities that were going to be used, except that I was fascinated with the fact that people respond in rich and interesting ways and love to have dialogue in written, oral, and video context and couldn't imagine how it might be used in all those ways. But I was amazed how parochial many journalists or people who are involved in media are. You know, a book is just for a book, as you say. A radio interview is just for radio. And of course, the technology is now really saying that there are many different ways that we as human beings are able to communicate, and we want all of them. So we've explored that. And we have a program that's available on video on demand through a million hotel rooms in the country. It's called Success Built to Last, Creating a Life That Matters. There will be podcasts like this one. I've been on a number of podcasts so far on the book tour uh, that we've been doing so far. Even the definition of, quote, a book tour is an obsolete term because really the conversations I've been having have been on radio and television in newspapers. I haven't done a single book signing at a bookstore yet. The bookstores have been very supportive and we're very proud to be associated with a, a national release where they've done a terrific job of getting the word out on their websites. You know, you've got Amazon, you've got barnesandnoble.com, and, and so there has been now a glorious explosion of the many different ways in which people can get information and it's being distributed. Just as a little bit of a follow-up comment to all this, one of the things that I'm actually working with someone on now, and I'll keep client's name out of it, but they have a journal that comes out every three months. And one of the things they want to do is to encourage deeper exploration of the journal. This is a business journal, by the way. They're finding that people read the publication sporadically, not anywhere near as much as they would like, and yet they believe in the content. So one of the things that we're probably going to be doing together is to develop a series of interviews with the authors instead of an executive summary type thing, but interviews with the authors to talk a little bit about the topics that will be distributed free to each subscriber, and it will then encourage deeper reading of the publication. So they're actually blurring the lines. What exactly is it that they publish? Is it you know, this recording, is it the magazine? And in fact, the end result of what they're after is engagement with the ideas. How you do it is a little irrelevant to them. They want the engagement, and of course, they want it as a business. I'd like to move on to a couple of the last questions here in the time we have. As you've gone through all this, the first thing may be that you want a vacation. You know, the, the old joke about the busman's holiday. He does not want to go on a bus. And so the next thing you may want to do may not be another book, but I was just curious if you and your co-authors have seen some things or in the experience of getting this out in the public eye, has it perhaps inspired you to do something perhaps as a sequel? And no, you don't have to spill it here. I'm just curious if there's something in mind. We have been certainly approached by this publisher and many others to do many others because the many different contexts of our lives in which we are all struggling for this personal definition of success. And that's a very ubiquitous, broad part of the human condition. 
to try to struggle, what does success mean to me right now, and what should it be? And I'm answering obliquely a very specific question about what the other types of books might be, but there are many different opportunities, both in books and other modalities, that we've been asked about for success built to last that really extend on this distinction that success needs to be defined personally by you and needs to, at the very least, shift from being whatever you happen to have seen in the latest episode of Survivor or The Apprentice to something that's long-term, that's enduring, that you know that the organization that you're working for, the career that you have, maybe even the personal relationships that you have, it's very difficult to find anything that lasts anymore. And so mining that in specific ways around you as an individual, around your career, around different parts of your life, is something that's of great interest to us. One of the things we're looking at is doing more international work. We got a glimpse at how people hold the concept of success around the world from the World Success Survey that we did, but it was still primarily North American driven. We found some of these issues like the three ways that people look at success through meaning, passion, and action being something that was very broadly held among folks. We didn't find distinctions among gender or international or cultural differences, which was amazing to us. We found differences in other ways, but not in those three ways that people think and process and filter the idea of success. So we think there's a kind of a long franchise of many different books and projects that could come out of this, because success is something, you know, it's gone by default. It's amazing. It's just been hanging out there. And when you ask people the question about success and meaning in the same sentence, it kind of generates a lot of heat in the room wherever I am, because people are thinking about how they might have been assuming what success meant by default. And then they may assume that the people sitting next to them, whether they're coworkers, their boss, or their organizational team, or even a spouse or partner, that we're all holding the same definition of success and it should mean this, or my parents or my in-laws or people who count in my life may have defined it for me. In other words, there's a lot of default definitions going on, and it's time to question your definition of success, see if it's yours, and then find if you can find alignment and recruit other people to that same definition of success, knowing that yours is a very personal one that you might hold. I'd certainly vote for the international one as being interesting in part because of from personal experience, as I think I've relayed to you before, the interesting thing is in the U.S., one of the first questions people ask you in a professional environment is, what do you do? In Europe, one of the first questions they want to know is, tell me something about yourself. They actually aren't particularly concerned about your job, your career. It's the whole person. Actually, in the international thing, that gets to another point here. This podcast has the blessing of being heard around the world. And your book, of course, is a major publishing event here in the United States and virtually anywhere online or bricks-and-mortar areas. I also know that Amazon and others are well-equipped to ship just about anywhere in the world. For overseas listeners, what's the best way for them to find a copy, do you think? Well, I think that certainly can go to all those places you described and find a copy of it. In the English-speaking world, we're actually releasing this week, October 19th, with the British and other English-speaking world release being done based out of London. Our publisher is Pearson, so they are an international company, a London-based company, and they are well represented throughout the Far East and West Asia and Africa and Europe around the world. The online modality as well as the English-speaking versions are underway, and then translations are underway. Built to Last was translated into dozens of languages. I have every expectation we'll be doing that with this book as well. So I think for starters, it's available online pretty much 
everywhere. I think that's one great way to be able to order these. And then very soon in retail outlets in places like the UK as well as South Africa and other parts of the English-speaking world in addition to North America. So people can look to us at successfulforlast.com. You can find us there, and we also have a little mall there so people can find various ways that, you know, through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and 1-800-CEO read that they can find success built to last. Yeah, and actually, as we're moving into the holiday season, everyone should remember this makes a great Christmas gift for your boss. As we close the interview, I guess one other thing I wanted to ask is, is there any message that you might want to leave our worldwide audience of strategic innovators in business for them to take back to their business and maybe to their families and the rest of their life as well? Well, I think the broad overwhelming impact that it had on the life of the authors for us and for all of the people that we've worked with around the world in business and in other organizations and nonprofits is that you really got to go back and ask what might have been considered in the past the obvious question that we were all assuming we knew the definition of success. It's time to really go back and take a hard look at that and perhaps reinvent it or redefine it in our businesses, our organizations, and our careers and and as individuals, and not suffer from the struggle that comes when others other than ourselves may be defining what success means. If there was one more ubiquitous point that was ever made from enduringly successful people, hundreds of people from all walks of life, from billionaires to community workers, from school teachers to Academy Award winners, Nobel laureates. Muhammad Yunus just won the Nobel Peace Prize this week. He was someone we spent a great deal of time with. What they all learned is that they had to define success explicitly and in their own unique and individual way, and then discover it and pursue it through a portfolio of passions and a, a sense of, of reconnecting with what matters and means something in their lives. And if there's anything I want to share with the world, it would be that journey. Redefine success for yourself. Find what matters to you and find your passion and turn those into action. Well, that's a great parting message, and Mark, we owe a debt to you and your co-authors on this, and both in creating the book and helping us think more deeply about what success means for all of us. So, Mark, well, thanks very much for joining us this week on Sternova. Brad, thank you for being here, and wish you enduring success and a life that matters with the Sternova Project. It's been outstanding, so congratulations. In the early 1970s, a famous rock band called Yes once sang the words, We Architect Our Life. And so it is with success as well, it seems. We structure our aims, processes, and values from a combination of genetics, experience, spirit, and will into a way of living that indeed shapes both what success means to us as well as how we experience it. There are the quips about success that we all know, such as Winston Churchill's that success consists of going from failure to failure without a loss of enthusiasm. And in Mark Thompson's conversation, you have, of course, heard of the power of failure in helping bring us forward to our ultimate success. But as we close this week's episode of Stranova, rather than taking more time in this closing essay myself, I want to ask each of you to take time after this for two things. One, to care enough about yourself and those close to you to take the time to reflect on these conversations and consider what success truly means to you personally. And two, to heed well the words of Ralph Waldo Emerson on this subject, who wrote famously over a century ago as he reflected on what this meant to him. Success. To laugh often and much. To win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children. To earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends. 
to appreciate beauty, to find the best in others, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to have succeeded. Thank you, Mr. Emerson, and our guest this week, Mark Thompson, for helping prod us to consider both our lives and our legacies a bit more deeply this week. That's our show for this week, and thanks for listening. We thank you for joining us for this episode of Stranova's podcast series. If you'd like to learn more about Stranova's business services and the topics discussed in this week's episode, please visit us at www.stranova.com, write us at ideas at stranova.com, or visit our blog at blog.stranova.com. Our program materials are covered by a Creative Commons license, the Attribution Non-Commercial Non-Derivatives 2.5 license by Brad Redderson. And this is Brad Redderson inviting you to join us soon for a future audio program exploring where strategy and innovation intersect.